Our uh, sermon title is Breath for Brittle Bones, and the first section is uh, Pandemic Blues Locked in Languishing. Pentecost Sunday commemorates the coming of the Holy Spirit upon the first disciples about seven weeks after Jesus died and rose again. It marked a new chapter in the early church, an experience of God's Spirit being present with and in believers to teach and guide and comfort them. Our Bible passage in Ezekiel recalls a time when God's Spirit was promised to enliven his people and bring hope for their future. As the pandemic wears on, it's been getting more difficult to keep our hopes up. An item on CTV News this past week featured Toronto psychotherapist Sarah Ahmed talking about the phenomenon of languishing and what to do about it. Languishing is the term that's been used to describe pandemic doldrums. You're not exactly feeling depressed, but there's sort of an emptiness, a listlessness, there's uncertainty, and you feel emotionally stuck. News reports about high COVID case counts and escalating fighting in the Middle East don't help either. Sir Ahmed says, Languishing is essentially described as a feeling of emptiness, numb, feeling stuck, feeling as though we have no motivation, no ability to focus. Tasks take longer. Now, being a psychotherapist with an act of practice, she warns that people's mental health may end up being affected in the long run if our feelings are left unattended. It helps to identify and acknowledge our feelings as a start. Languishing is prompting some folks to have their so-called midlife crisis earlier than they might have otherwise. Ahmed explains, it's forced people to stop and take a look at what's going on. That kept me so busy, that kept me so occupied, and why do I feel like this? It begs the question of purpose and long-term goals. Is this really what I want to be doing with my life? In the news article, she offered some practical advice for the short term. Identify your feelings using a feelings wheel to help name your emotions. Take one day at a time. Book some time, such as an hour or two, to attempt something that's a challenge for you and is stimulating and rewarding. Her suggestions are designed to help people keep their head above water. Now, it's a secular article, so it doesn't go beyond the immediate. There's not a mention of reflecting on your life in light of eternity. To be convinced our daily existence actually matters and has significance requires validation from outside ourselves. The Bible points to God, our creator and redeemer, as the one who ultimately judges our life's worth. If you're languishing, if you're experiencing pandemic fatigue, there's no better time than the present to reflect on your life goals and priorities, to weigh your activities in the light of scripture, truth, and the Lord's calling for you. In our passage today from Ezekiel 37, the prophet is given a vivid object lesson from the Lord that visualizes people's need to receive God's enlivening spirit when all seems lost or futile and hope has vanished. Next section, when all seems hopeless. Now a bit of background before we dive into our text. About 721 BC, the northern kingdom of Israel fell to the Assyrians. By around 600 BC, the Babylonians had been gaining in power and conquered Assyria's capital, Nineveh, with the help of the Medes in 612 BC. 
the king of Judea rebelled against the Babylonian leader Nebuchadnezzar. And in 597 BC, the king's son and about 10,000 Jews, including Ezekiel, were exiled to Babylon. Following further rebellion, Judea's capital, Jerusalem, was laid under siege, taken captive and destroyed, 586 BC. Now, a long enchantment with idolatry and Baal worship, including such terrible things as infant sacrifice, had taken its toll on first the northern kingdom of Israel and then the southern kingdom of Judah, despite brief reforms under King Josiah, which seemed to have gone only skin deep. They had been warned clearly by the prophet Moses even before entering the promised land, Deuteronomy 28, 45, and 47. All these curses will come upon you. They will pursue you and overtake you until you are destroyed because you did not obey the Lord your God and observe the commands and decrees he gave you. Because you did not serve the Lord your God faithfully and gladly in the time of prosperity, therefore in hunger and thirst, in nakedness and dire poverty, you will serve the enemies the Lord sends against you. He will put an iron yoke upon your neck until he has destroyed you. Ezekiel was both a prophet and a priest. His ministry spanned for 22 years, starting in 593 B.C. So there were seven years before the fall of Jerusalem in 586 B.C. and 15 years after its fall. The first 24 chapters of Ezekiel contain warnings of divine judgment. In chapter 33, an escapee relays the news that Jerusalem has fallen. Chapters 33 to 48 shift more to oracles of consolation for Israel, comfort and promises of restoration, including some visions that would await the final coming of the Messiah. So today's chapter, chapter 37, fits in the section dealing with consolation. Judgment has happened. Jerusalem has been destroyed. Exiles have been removed in successive waves from their homeland and brought to this foreign country. How devastating and crushing all this must have felt for the Jews. The ten northern tribes of Israel, long gone over a hundred years earlier. Now Judah in the south, a faithful holdout where David reigned, has been conquered too. The beautiful temple of Solomon has been destroyed. The place where the city of Jerusalem once stood is now a desolate wasteland, a heap of rubble. Ezekiel, being both prophet and priest, must have felt deeply the loss of the temple where sacrifices were offered and people gathered to worship the one true God. Now here he was stuck in Babylon, some 2,700 kilometers away. It probably felt like God had abandoned them, deserted them. They associated Jerusalem with God's throne, the, the temple as the focal point of his attention when people prayed. But through visions to Ezekiel, God would demonstrate he was not restricted territorially to Palestine. He could address them just as easily over in Babylon as in their homeland. His sovereignty included going mobile. You remember that vision of the throne on the wheels that turned within the wheels. So we might say Ezekiel and the Jewish people were languishing. All hope had been lost. They were a defeated and exiled people strewn abroad to the four winds. They were done for, or so it seemed. Here's where the Lord deposits his prophet 
in a valley of dry bones. Now, we're not told exactly how this happens. We, we know Philip was snatched up and physically relocated in Acts 8, so God could easily have teleported Ezekiel to a certain spot. Or it might have been a vision. It matters little. Ezekiel 37, 1 to 3. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. He led me back and forth among them, and I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley, bones that were very dry. He asked me, Son of man, can these bones live? I said, O sovereign Lord, you alone know. The question would seem rhetorical. Very dry bones, similar to what one might see left over from a battlefield after many years. Time and decomposition have done their work. Of course, these bones cannot live apart from divine intervention. Ezekiel meekly acknowledges God's sovereignty, even in this apparently impossible situation. Does that valley of very dry bones reflect your situation today? Are you up against some seemingly impossible obstacle? Are you frightened by the global pandemic with its new variants cropping up? Has your business been curtailed because of lockdown measures? Are you worried about the, the added debt load incurred by the government as it attempts to keep the economy afloat? Do you just miss your relatives being able to give hugs? It seems all too long since we could go about life as normal. Those feelings the psychotherapist described of being empty and helpless are very real. Next section, proclaim the sovereign Lord's enlivening word. As Ezekiel is led back and forth amongst these great many very dry bones, the Lord gives the prophet instruction. Ezekiel 37, 4 to 6. Then he said to me, prophesy to these bones and say to them, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Sovereign Lord says to these bones. I'll make breath enter you and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. There's a repeated emphasis in this section on the power of God's word, released as his people speak. Prophesy in related terms occurs seven times from verses 4 to 12. Say, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. God is spirit, John 4, 24. His word is the powerful active agent by which his purposes are accomplished. At the beginning of creation, God did not point his finger and go, poof. Genesis 1, 3. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. Genesis 1, 6. And God said, let there be an expanse between the waters to separate water from water. He speaks and it comes into being. He is Yahweh, God who makes things happen. Jesus said in John 6, 63, The Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and they are life. One night, a Pharisee who was really sincerely seeking came to Jesus under cover of darkness to find out more about this kingdom he was proclaiming. Perhaps Nicodemus was sensing a frustration or lack of satisfaction with the current level of spirituality amongst his colleagues. 
He was languishing spiritually, feeling empty, yearning for something more. Jesus pointed Nicodemus to the possibility of new birth, something that could only happen through God's mysterious spirit. John 3, 5 to 8. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. It's not enough to be born of water, to be born of the flesh. Our our Creator has hardwired us with a spirit that longs for more, reaches out to Him. As has been said, we have a a God-shaped hole within our heart. There's a vacuum only He can fill. We need his breath to inflate us, pick us up, fill us. The terms for spirit and breath and wind are all closely related in Hebrew and Greek. Back to Ezekiel. As the prophet speaks to the bones as commanded, there's a noise, a rattling sound. Bones connect to bones. Flesh and skin appear and cover them, but they're all just still laying there. Verse 8. But there was no breath in them. Again, the Lord tells Ezekiel to speak, verse 9. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to it, this is what the sovereign Lord says, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe into these slain that they may live. The expression from the four winds can mean from the four quarters of the earth, hinting at all the distant countries to which the Jewish people had been dispersed, first by Assyria, now by Babylon. And that breath proves to be the missing ingredient. Verse 10. So I prophesied as the Lord commanded me, and breath entered them. They came to life and stood up on their feet, a vast army. What a sight that must have been to see. Section. Glory and grace in God's new chapter. In verses 11 to 14, the Lord interprets the vision to Ezekiel. He has been aware of their languishing, their sense of defeat and hopelessness. Here is named or identified their feelings and emotions. Verse 11, Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. They say, our bones are dried up and our hope is gone. We are cut off. But God has not forgotten or abandoned them. Disciplined them, yes, and provided the promised land its missed Sabbath years so the land can enjoy its needed rest. But God's plans and purposes for the nation are not over. In the immediate turn, the people will be brought back and restored to Palestine. See more about this in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah as the exiles return from captivity and the temple and walls around Jerusalem are gradually rebuilt. Here's the promise for the Jewish people in verses 12 to 13. Sorry. Ah, back one. Thank you. Therefore prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says, O my people, I'm going to open your graves and bring you up from them. I'll bring you back to the land of Israel. Then you, my people, will know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and bring you up from them. Scholars debate whether the concept of resurrection is in view here. The main point 
is that God is going to do an amazing thing by bringing the thousands who have been physically removed from Judah back to that land. A promise that would have given a defeated and discouraged people hope. Especially after Ezekiel's predictions of Jerusalem's downfall came true in 586 BC, thereby establishing his credibility. You better listen to this guy. There's a promise even more wonderful in verse 14, something that applies not just to the Jewish exiles, but to those who believe in God's word here today. Ezekiel 37, 14. I will put my spirit in you, and you will live, and I will settle you in your own land. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken, and I have done it, declares the Lord. The implications of that first phrase are huge. I will put my spirit in you and you will live. Here we have the premonitions of the new covenant in the old. The Old Testament or covenant centered on the commandments given to Moses at Mount Sinai, visually represented in the two stone tablets containing the Ten Commandments. These tablets were housed in the Ark of the Covenant, which was the focal point of the most holy place in the tabernacle and later the temple. There was no approaching the most holy place without passing the altar where burnt offerings were made for the forgiveness of sin. If the people obeyed God's commands, they would be blessed and dwell in the land. But when they disobeyed and followed idols, the gods of the nations, they would be cursed and evicted from their land. Ezekiel and the thousands of Jewish exiles would be all too keenly aware of how, as a nation, they had failed to keep God's laws and now were exiled far away to Babylon. The old covenant or old deal just wasn't working. Their stubbornness and pride, their stiff necks and evil desires, sabotaged their relationship with the God who delivered them from slavery in Egypt. So in the Old Testament prophets, such as Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, we begin to get hints of a new approach. Rather than outward compliance and law obedience, righteousness would become an inside job. God would give a fresh start to those who repented and sought him. As it says here, I will put my spirit in you. For more context, flip back one chapter to Ezekiel 36, 25 to 27. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Instead of a stubborn heart, heart of stone, God would give them a heart of flesh, responsive, affected, loving, and caring. God's spirit inside them would move them to keep his laws out of love and care rather than grudging compliance. This is associated with God's cleansing from impurities and idols, sprinkling with clean water, which we would see symbolized in baptism. The Holy Spirit convicts us of sin, shows us how grieved the Lord is by our trespasses and rebellion, and moves us to turn to him in confession and new patterns of living. Ezekiel 36, 31. Then you will remember your evil ways and wicked deeds, and you will loathe yourselves for your sins and detestable practices. 
the Spirit opens our eyes to God's holiness, our shortcomings, and prompts us to be pierced to the heart. That's what happened in response to Peter's preaching at Pentecost, Acts 2.37. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Communion points us to the act of Jesus loving us all the way to the cross so we could be changed from hell-bound sinners to God's holy people. As Paul writes in Ephesians 5:25 to 27, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish but holy and blameless. Praise God. Paul describes this remarkable turnaround the Holy Spirit makes possible this way to his co-worker, Titus, in Titus 3, 4 to 7. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. The hope of eternal life. We are justified, declared, put right with God in his sight by grace. What Jesus has done for us, not by works of the law. So now we are heirs, inheritors of all that awaits us, having the hope of eternal life, not left languishing hopelessly, no matter what pandemics or losses or challenges this life may bring us. Last section. What's that noise? In closing, when our life seems like a valley of dead, dry bones, lifeless and languishing, God's Spirit can infuse us and bring some strange sounds. A noise, a rattling sound as bone connects to bone and flesh encases them, then the sound of breath coming into them from the four winds. God is preparing a vast army to stand on their feet and do his awesome will. There was a strange sound that first Pentecost, Acts 2, 1-4, the children's story was uh, pointing out as well. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. And all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. The sound of wind from heaven, God's Spirit bringing new power and ability. An old-timer who'd lived all his life way back in the bush by himself went into a hardware store early one morning and uh, asked for a saw. The salesman took a chainsaw from the shelf and commented that it was their newest model with all the latest in technology, guaranteed to cut 10 cords of firewood in a day. Well, the old-timer thought that sounded pretty impressive, so bought it on the spot. Well, the next day, the customer returned looking exhausted. Something must be wrong with this saw, he moaned. I worked as hard as I could and only managed to cut three cords of wood, 
I used to do four with my old-fashioned saw. Looking confused, the salesman said, here, let me try it out on some wood we keep over here out back. You know, they went to the wood pile as the salesman pulled the cord and as the motor roared to life, the customer leaped back and exclaimed, what's that noise? Trying to saw wood without the power of the chainsaw to help is sort of like us attempting to live the Christian life without the daily empowerment of the Holy Spirit. We very much need his divine breath to connect us and help us stand on our feet and know our God. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for the word picture of the valley of dry bones you showed Ezekiel. You know the areas of our life in which we're feeling defeated, despondent, and discouraged. Sometimes sin leaves us feeling very far off from you, fearing your condemnation, hopeless of ever being put right. Thank you for your grace and kindness and love spelled out for us by Jesus at the cross. We want to live for you from now on, to know you and bring glory to you. In Jesus' name, amen.